The Guardian. For this episode of the Focus podcast, Jon Snow chairs Afghanistan, What Makes a Nation? A Guardian debate from the British Museum. To tie in with the museum's Crossroads of the Ancient World exhibition, showing surviving treasures from the country, the panel will examine Afghanistan's strategic position, its diverse people and rich resources which have shaped the nation. Welcome, and um, I mean the audience is always at least as interesting as the panel. Uh, very, very eclectic. There are many Afghans here. There are many people who've been to Afghanistan. There are many people who've never been to Afghanistan and never want to go. There are many who do want to go. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a voyage of discovery and recollection, and uh, uh, hopefully you will be as engaged and contribute as much as the panel uh, contribute. But it, it's a blessed panel, not the least of which because we have Professor Michael Clark here. I'll introduce each as they speak. Each will give about a five-minute thumbnail sketch of their sense of Afghanistan and of what the past tells us about the future. Um, but Michael Clark is um, a defence specialist. I'm not going to read the whole of his biog out because it's there in front of you. But I do want to draw your attention to the fact that he is right now on the uh, Chief of Defence Staff's Strategic Advisory Group, which must have a lot of Afghanistan about it. Uh, and he's also on the Prime Minister's National Security Forum, which must have a lot of Afghanistan about it. So, Michael, thank you very much indeed for being here tonight. John, thank you very much. Uh, I was just asked to provide a perspective from uh, my point of view as I spend my life looking at uh, war, conflict and related unpleasantnesses. And uh, in a sense, the the, the title of the exhibition is uh, Afghanistan, Crossroads of the Ancient World. And as Neil said, it's Crossroads of Asia. And that's absolutely true. And you see that in spades in the wonderful uh, exhibition. And as a natural crossroads, a geographical crossroads, it is almost by geographical necessity, uh, an arena of conflict. And that has been the case from Alexander the Great uh, through uh, the uh, late uh, ancient period to the uh, medieval period and the modern period. People often talk about the Afghan wars. Remember, there were three Afghan wars in the 1840s, in the 1870s, 1879, and after the First World War. I mean, they involved a lot of, of, of dreadful uh, events on both sides, the, uh, the um, uh, retreat from Kabul, complete massacre of, of the column, uh, the Battle of Maiwand, um, but Britain won two of those wars and drew one of them, if that matters, but it mattered in the sense that they, were, uh, they lost battles but, but succeeded in what they were trying to do, which was to keep the Russians out of India. That was a strategic plan to involve themselves in Afghanistan, either through puppet rulers or directly, and they kept getting pulled into things they didn't really understand. But the ultimate objective was to stop the Russian push into the, uh, the jewel of the crown, which was uh, India. And, of course, that's why the British acquired, they say, the British acquired its, its empire in a fit of absent-mindedness. To protect India, you had to protect Afghanistan. So to, to protect Afghanistan, you had to get up onto, beyond the northwest frontier. Same thing. To protect India, you had to protect the Suez Canal. Therefore, you had to protect Egypt. To protect Egypt, you had to protect Sudan. A fit of absent-mindedness, the thing just keeps going outwards and outwards. Um, and that was the case. And it was done with some local, a lot of local understanding by a few people, but nothing like uh, an empathy with this rich and, and amazing country. The Cold War saw a certain sort of stability in Afghanistan because it suited both sides, the Soviet Union who backed uh, India and the Americans who backed, uh, or the Western allies who tended to back Pakistan. So it suited them to leave Afghanistan as it were, more or less where it was, 
uh, and, until the internal situation became uh, destabilized and then the, the Russian invasion in 1979 created the, uh, the beginning of the, of the process of events that we're all very familiar with. And since 1979, I mean, Afghanistan has been in constant war uh, and has been the object of any, everyone's uh, interference. And the, the crisis in Afghanistan now is not only driven by what the coalition forces are doing there and the Taliban are trying to do and so on. The key actors are uh, Pakistan and India and Saudi Arabia and China. Uh, so many countries have an interest in what goes on in Afghanistan because it is crossroads uh, of Asia. And just to say something uh, finally on this point uh, before I just conclude uh, is that um, President Karzai is the seventh president of Afghanistan since the monarchy uh, disappeared. There have been seven, he's the seventh president. And it's worth remembering uh, the fate of those seven presidents. Four of them were killed. One of them died in exile. One lives in exile. And he's the seventh. So there's not a great deal of job security in this, in this role. Uh, this is a, a very troubled country. Now, um, warfare is in, tends to be intrinsic to places which are natural crossroads for trade, for, uh, for wealth, for strategic control. And you can see that throughout Afghanistan's history. I am, I'm paid to be a pessimist. I'm a short-term pessimist because I'm a defense analyst. I'm paid to see what will go wrong uh, with everything. But I'm a long-term optimist because the nature of conflict and warfare is changing, at least in this respect. And we could talk about this endlessly, and I won't. Um, but in this respect, that uh, Rupert Smith, uh, ex-general, has written a very good book called War Among the People. And what he says is that all wars from now on are, are one way or another, war among the people – not just civil wars or counterinsurgency operations, but every conflict is fundamentally about the acceptance of people, both at home, wherever home is, and people in the territory in which fighting may take place. It is their, it's, it's their tolerance of, of what goes on. And what, the reason that, that gives me a little bit of short-term pessimism, pessimism but long-term optimism is that it has dawned on the forces at work now in Afghanistan, both the ISAF forces, the, the international forces, and Saudi Arabia and China and uh, India, that unless they understand this society better, that there will be no better outcome. And when, when people say that you know, the, the coalition has been in Afghanistan for eight or nine years, I say, no, it hasn't. It's been there for one year, eight times because it's this groundhog year after groundhog year. But that is beginning to change. Late in the day, and with time lost, I admit, it is beginning to change. And so I am, in that respect, more long-term uh, optimistic that that message painfully, painfully has got through. And so that leaves Afghanistan at what I would call, it's, it's a country that is at the riptides of history. So many things churn around in the territory that we now call uh, Afghanistan. And in that riptide of, of historical uh, surges, Somehow, the, the Afghan people that we see today have, have, have inherited an identity. They have found ways of expressing that identity. And everyone in Afghanistan will tell you that the Afghans are great survivors. And one of the reasons that, that life is the way it is in Afghanistan at the moment is because the Afghans will back the winner. That's what they've always done. They, they will have to live with whoever wins. And so a lot of the conflict in Afghanistan is about credibility. Will the Taliban come back if they're pushed out, if their influence is diminished? Will the international community stick with them? Is Karzai the, the president who will really make a difference? They are whole, they're hedging their bets because they're waiting to see who will prevail, and then they'll live with it. And through that survival, that's where you find the expression of, of Afghanness. And when I see exhibitions like this, it reminds me that in the, in the beauty and the humanity that you see in these exhibits, 
um, I remember why I'm a long-term optimist and that the human nature that is capable of war and conflict and awfulness is also capable of this magnificent artistry. And in, in real beauty, there is truth. And in that truth, uh, I find a lot of optimism. Thank you, Michael, very much. Well, now, our next uh, speaker was born in Afghanistan. She's here in London doing a, uh, a PhD at uh, SOAS. She's a political activist. She's pursued women's rights very dangerously in Afghanistan. Um, she grew up there, um, and um, she is also, incidentally, a young global leaders, a member of the Young Global Leaders Forum, um, Ozala uh, Ashraf Naman. Thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. It's, uh, I would like to thank the uh, organizers, the British Museum and uh, uh, Guardian, for organizing this. It's also uh, is a great uh, privilege and a pride to be here when the Afghanistan hidden treasure or this amazing exhibition is there. Um, uh, I think I will start briefly uh, going through back to the history from where um, uh, earlier uh, the, the discussion was uh, ended, uh, just to give an idea of when Afghanistan as a nation emerged and then we can probably discuss further when we uh, have question and answer. Uh, the very first attempts to to Afghan uh, uh, to, to 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 the Afghan nation to emerge as a nation for people of that territory started actually in the very old days of the 16th century, uh, when there was this enlightened movement uh, by Bayezid Ansari, who was following a Sufi tariqah or Sufi uh, style of uh, living, uh, and uh, there are stories about this movement becoming. Uh, uh, extending and demanding uh, independence uh, from the Mongolians of that time. But then, very specifically, the history uh, identifies uh, other famous Afghans from, uh, from, the late, um, from the early 19th century, like Mirwais Khan Hoteki, and then Ahmad Shah Abdali, who is actually known as the father of the nation, who actually, uh, the struggles of the independence, of uh, having an empire, because this, we're talking about the period that the actual battles were not about nation building in the sense that we talk about nations today, but it was rather uh, empires and having more territory and having more control over territories, extension of territories, basically. So in that sense, um, uh, finally, after years of struggle or after years of wars uh, being fought, Ahmad Shah Abdali uh, uh, declared Afghanistan as an empire in 1747. Uh, even though uh, this empire existed and this empire was mainly focusing on extending the territory, reaching to Delhi, reaching to different parts of Central Asia and uh, to, the, uh, to the south and to the, to the west, two parts of Persia, uh, there were not enough uh, attempts to build the state or to build the nation only until, um, uh, I would say, late uh, 19th century when, again, there was a kind of agreement between Afghanistan after the 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 the, the, the first the, uh, the, the second especially the second uh, uh, Anglo-Afghan war, uh, so the battle uh, uh, between the international different international actors uh, or, or powers of the time and these Afghan leaders who were there and who were trying to maintain what they had in hand it was ongoing and it was finally. Uh, uh, during the time of Abdurrahman, who also is one of the kings uh, ruled country in the um, uh, in the late 
19th century, when the actual attempts to build that, uh, that state in, in the administrative sense and the legal sense uh, and in the sort of financial sense uh, began. Uh, of course, attempts, relative attempts were uh, made earlier, but this is a very specific time. So that, uh, what we consider or what we call today like Afghanistan as a tribal society or tribal nations that every tribe has their own rules and systems, Abdurrahman is a king uh, who actually broke those tribal systems to a large extent by moving them from one to another side, by dis the, sort of disabling them in terms of their control and everything, in order to build something that we call a nation. And for, for building this nation, it was important to have unifications or unify uh, the country as a state and create that identity as what we call today uh, Afghan or Afghan. Uh, I'm not talking about other sides of the same king who was very savage and who had also very massive uh, other violations of uh, d uh, different uh, tribes um, in this uh, approach that he, he was uh, using. But in terms of building a state or building a nation, I think uh, he had remarkable uh, roles to play. Of course, Afghanistan in, these, uh, in this period had its first uh, constitution. And then we, we, we come to the 20th century, uh, Amanullah, who won the independence of Afghanistan after the third Anglo-Afghan war, who actually started to, uh, to, uh, to take Afghanistan to a further step of modernization. But then again, we are talking about a period in the history that, in a way similar to what we have seen uh, hap uh, happened later also in Afghanistan, uh, modernization could not happen without, uh, uh, without help and assistance from outside because Afghanistan was not like Turkey or like many other empires enough stable and enough uh, ready to, uh, to use its own taxation money to, to build. And some, uh, some kind of issues happened in this period, especially in terms of modernization, that created a distance or a kind of gap within the society that I believe led to what we are seeing even until today. For example, some of the very rapid radical reforms uh, uh, resulted into reactions from, uh, from people, the very narrow focus of the uh, um, reforms into the cities and forgetting the, the, the rural uh, parts also created this gap between the uh, rural urban and uh, similar others. But this, pro uh, this process continued. I think I'm probably... Uh, no, you've got another minute or so. I have. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm mm -hmm. another minute. A minute and a half, maybe. <laughs> I am reaching to uh, okay. 20th century now. <laughs> Couple uh, of minutes. Well, uh, th thank you, John. Thank you. Um, this whole uh, process of uh, modernization, at times quite rapid, uh, uh, as I mentioned, at times uh, gradual and slower, continued to create an, uh, an equilibrium, what I would call in Afghanistan, an equilibrium in terms of not letting an outside force to, 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 to get into the country or even make an attempt after the third uh, Anglo-Afghan war, but at the same time maintain a relationship between different powers who always and always kept an eye over this country. And this, uh, I think, was more the talent of these leaders who maintained that relationship in a way not to go further on one side and uh, ignore the other side. Um, and I believe whenever such uh, balance or such equilibrium is destroyed, it's the period that the war begins. Probably in the older history of Afghanistan it was the case, but it is definitely the case after we have seen after the 70s, when actually uh, Afghanistan under the influence of different uh, global issues happening at that time, political movements, 
we had a decade of what we call decade of democracy where the absolute monarch system was changed into a relative one and then it opened the ground of Afghanistan for demo uh, different democratic activities to happen and that resulted in creating a new uh, kind of society which probably had uh, uh, internally had uh, gone a little bit faster for certain periods, but externally it also uh, somehow destroyed that kind of balance that existed. The Russians decided to invade Afghanistan, of course, uh, 1979, this tragic moment happened. And after that, we, we enter into this, into this war that is still, uh, I think we see the consequences of that war. And at the same time, when the Russian got in, then the other side, the, the Western bloc also said, why shouldn't we intervene the things are broken, the promises are broken. So they have created, the, 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 they, ha, they have financed and created something that today the Afghans called monsters who not only defeated the Soviets, who not only achieved the goal of the Westerns, but actually destroyed the country in the worst type probably in the recent history recorded. So this is the period of the last 30 years, a period of my generation, a generation that comes into this uh, uh, waves of, of, of or, or comes to, into this uh, conflict situation that you see uh, all the time uh, betrayals and uh, uh, promotion or promoting wars uh, uh, happening one after the other. The Soviet invasion led to uh, millions of people becoming refugees, two million of people becoming uh, victim of the war, and of course thousands of other uh, uh, troubles that we had. And of course, uh, again, uh, 10 years on, a decision was made, okay, this was a mistake, let's leave. They left Afghanistan into another war for years until the Taliban arrived. Another force that is not considered a, 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 a local emerging force, definitely it was an outside intervention of a different type. It also created and deepened the conflict further. And we have reached to somewhere we called the new, uh, the new phase for Afghanistan, if you like. A phase where the West actually came and confessed, oh, we made a mistake. This was a mistake what happened in Afghanistan. We, we uh, abandoned the country and we are sharing a responsibility. As an Afghan, I believe definitely they do share the responsibility. But what we have seen, again, in the sense of uh, post-2001, if money was missing to build a state or a nation. If resources were missing, we had them all. But what went wrong and what mess that we still, 10 years on uh, uh, a, a direct intervention again, 10 years on attempts to build a state, 10, ten years on to try to, to save this country and to try to, uh, uh, to, to keep it uh, safe and uh, protected, we are still not reaching for what we were aiming. I think we will continue further uh, discussing about that in the uh, further talks. Thank you. Ozala, thank you very much. Um, our next speaker... <clears throat> our next speaker is Mina Yalavanpa, and she is Finnish, uh, but educated uh, in uh, all the best places, Oxford, LSE, and um, Harvard. Um, but most critically, she's spent intimate, the last five years intimately, in the UN organization within Afghanistan, living there and uh, for a long time running the uh, UN assistance mission. Uh, she knows the nuts and bolts of how life has been uh, 
from that perspective very, very strongly. And I'm delighted to ask you to speak to us. Thanks very much. That's on, is it? It is. Um, I'm just going to pretty much um, carry on with, this, um, with, with the period that Ursula brought us into, but with the remark that my own first political memory is of Soviet tanks rolling into Afghanistan. Uh, this was in 1979. Uh, I was watching it on the evening news in Finland, um, and I was eight years old. And, and this was a sort of very powerful um, context for me of what world politics was about. And this image came back to me many years later in 2006 uh, when, I was in, when I was sitting with bearded and turbaned government officials in Helmand province. Uh, I was there as uh, part of a British government team to strengthen the capacity of the Afghan government. And I would sit there and say things like, we, in this case the British government, are not here to stay. You're a proud nation. Our goal is to help you build a strong state and then we'll leave. And then all of a sudden in the conversation it struck me that there was a complete discrepancy in the narratives that we were pursuing. The West saw its role in Afghanistan through a lens of humanitarian intervention, uh, state building, um, and at the same time my Pashtun interlocutors in Helmand remembered the last time the British troops had been to Helmand. Um, they remembered the Soviet tanks uh, and they remembered all the other um, occupiers laying claim to land in Afghanistan uh, and, and this long tradition. And what I was saying to them made very little sense. A recent survey that's been conducted in Helmand and Kandahar shows that most of the Afghans in the south still don't know why the foreign troops are there. Many don't even know about 9-11, They've never seen that image, which is so etched into the collective consciousness of the West, of planes flying into the Twin Towers on lower Manhattan on that crisp September day 10 years ago. And I think this misunderstanding is at the core of our intervention in Afghanistan. It's what makes for dangerous hubris. We, the international community, went to Afghanistan with the best intentions to end the brutal Taliban regime, to prevent al-Qaeda from having bases in Afghanistan, uh, to build up an Afghan state. In the pursuit of these goals, we've spent half a trillion dollars and lost thousands of lives. Yet despite all of that investment, it's become harder and harder to see how the current strategy for Afghanistan could be made to work. In fact, I believe we've made things worse. When I first arrived in Helmand, the international forces estimated that there were a few thousand Taliban fighters in the south. Now the Taliban have expanded across the whole country, uh, and they have at least 35,000 full-time fighters. Uh, they could be many, many more, and some analysts think that they're, they're up to about 80 or 90,000. Our presence, which is seen as a foreign occupation, is actually now fueling the conflict. We've also linked our fate to President Karzai's. And he, after the 2009 presidential elections, fraudulent re-election, uh, has very little legitimacy. 
his government is increasingly seen by Afghans as corrupt, self-serving, incompetent. And so our money is fueling that corruption and the anger of the population. To shore up his weak support among Afghans, Karzai is increasingly attacking his foreign supporters, juxtaposing Afghanistan's interests with those of the West and feeding xenophobia and the narrative of this foreign occupation that, that is already inherent in the way that Afghans see their, their place and their relation with, with the West. And as we've blundered, Afghan society has become disappointed and brutalized. When I arrived five years ago, I was struck by the generosity, the humor, the hospitality of the Afghans that I met. And then I've been shocked to see how that same society in the summer this year, how there were killings of eye doctors who were helping in Badakhshan. Ten days ago, some of my UN colleagues died in Mazar. Um, and what was it that prevented those... There were 3,000 people standing by. Why did they not intervene um, to prevent the killers from, from storming that compound and, and killing the UN staff members? Now, to me, the question is, how can this brutalization be reversed? And, and this is brutalization to which we have contributed. And here, in this wonderful environment, and standing in front of the exquisite artifacts from 2,000 years ago, I couldn't help but wonder, what connects Afghans today to the cosmopolitan culture of 2,000 years ago, to that nomadic princess who wore that beautiful, uh, collapsible golden crown. Uh, and what do today's Afghans make of the voluptuous female figures um, from India that are on display when most women have to wear burqas? And, and what, it, what will it take for Afghanistan to recover its tolerance? And instead of rejecting outside influences... Will Afghanistan once again celebrate its place at the crossroads of all these cultures and absorb the best parts of each of them? And I personally can't see any other way to get to that future um, except by negotiating a peace and by agreeing that the, the steps that need to be taken for the withdrawal of the foreign forces to overcome the misunderstanding, the, the, the way in which we've now positioned ourselves as occupiers. Thank you very much indeed, Minna. Thank you. <laughs> so our final member of the, t the panel is uh, Sarah Shah, um, who I worked with at Channel 4 News in her early days um, and who was born in Britain but of Afghan stock. I've always regarded her, probably erroneously, but nevertheless, as uh, Afghan aristocracy. I always fantasized she had something to do with the royal family, but a very, 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 very long time ago. Uh, at any rate, I think she had a great-great-grandfather who was in the court somewhere. Um, but at any rate, and not the legal court at that, but the, the royal court. But she's a maker of some remarkable films in Afghanistan, for which she's been well rewarded. Um, and she's also a very, very fine journalist, so I'm delighted to give you the floor. Okay. 
Well, I might make a few uh, random remarks, and I'm sorry, because inevitably I will cover some of the same periods as, as some of the other speakers, but perhaps I can expand on some of their points. Uh, my great-great-great-grandfather actually was a warlord from Pogman, which is about 30 uh, miles from Kabul, kilometers from Kabul, and uh, he used to call Kabul, Kabul John, dear Kabul, because his men used to attack Kabul. And they, they had a good song, which is, um, Oh, foreigner, do not attack Kabul, because attacking Kabul is our job. <laughs> so, <laughs> but despite that, I was brought up, brought up uh, with a very strong sense, although I'm not, I have to say I'm uh, a bit of an interloper here because I'm not fully Afghan, and I was brought up in Britain, uh, but my father was an Afghan nationalist. And I was brought up with this strong concept of Afghaniyat, uh, Afghan identity and my father would explain you know that you have your tribe your family your village but you do have this sense of Afghan identity and when I was a kid he would tune in it was very difficult in those days to the radio shortwave radio and over the radio waves would come uh, what um, uh, you were talking about the, the, the stories of the newest five-year plan and, you know, a raisin factory had just opened in Kabul and women were wearing short skirts and the country was being modernized. And all this would make my father intensely proud. And he would say, you know, we're just about to go back to Afghanistan. And, and, and tragically, the Soviet Union invaded, as we know, in 1979, just as uh, we kids certainly thought that was about to happen. So... Spool forward a few years, and in the uh, early to mid-80s, I found myself uh, in Jarji, in Afghanistan, near the border with Pakistan, with some Afghan Mujahideen, uh, being a journalist, which I didn't really know how to do. And uh, we passed these huge installations, which um, I didn't know at the time, but turned out to be Osama bin Laden's uh, installations there. And the Afghan Mujahideen I was with uh, said, you know, they, they became a bit worried. They said, look, you know, don't make too much of a fuss here. These, these people aren't like us. They're, they're Arabs. They've actually come, you know, from Arab countries. You know, and they say they've come to help us, but they're very different from us. Their culture is different. They think in a different way. And uh, the guy I was with explained it to me by saying, every Afghan fighter wants to be a Ghazi, a hero, uh, you know, and have glory. All the Arab fighters want is to be a shaheed, a martyr. He said, we don't understand it, but we help them out because we put them in the front line and, you know, they, <laughs> they get their wish. Now, of course, I have very little idea at the time, but gradually it became clear that what was happening was because the West looked at Afghanistan, as it really has done, you know, since the great game and before, as, as a crossroads, as a part of something bigger, it saw what was happening in Afghanistan only in terms of a superpower conflict. So it really didn't seem important who you supported or gave money or military aid to, as long as they were fighting the Soviet Union, because surely the Soviet Union was the enemy. So as we now know, it was left to the Pakistani ISI and, you know, Saudi Arabia put in money as well and uh, Arabs and Muslims from all over the, the world were recruited to go and fight in Afghanistan. And the West really, as we now know, slipped its eye off the ball and uh, allowed Afghanistan to become a sort of crucible for this new sort of thinking, which was a weird synthesis of, you know, traditionalist tribal values 
uh, extremist religion, very purist uh, Islamic religion, which was very, very alien and is really very alien to Afghanistan. But over the last 30 years, these attitudes that were so strange to the Mujahideen in the 1980s have crept like a cancer throughout Afghan society. So, for instance, in the 1990s, during the Civil War, when uh, the Soviet Union withdrew and therefore the West abruptly withdrew as well support, uh, there was terrible civil war. 20,000 people in Kabul, it's estimated, were killed when the country's own prime minister shelled his capital uh, a man called Gulbuddin Hikmatyar, who I'm sure you'll all have heard of, who was uh, probably the major recipient of, of U.S. aid uh, during the uh, Soviet uh, era in Afghanistan. And it was this terrible power vacuum that uh, prompted Pakistan, who'd also been deserted by the West, to support the Taliban uh, against its erstwhile ally, Gulbuddin Hikmatyar, and, and other warlords, just to try and get a bit of stability in Afghanistan. And like Azala, I was I'm much more briefly than Azala. I'm, I'm blown away by your, your bravery in being in Kabul during the Taliban period. But I was there briefly, uh, you know, and I saw some of the craziness of the Taliban and evilness at, at first hand. And I'm sure we'll talk about it later, so I won't go on about it now. Uh, but I would just say that after 9-11, there was another window of opportunity. And I'm afraid that, again... The West saw this as part of another wider war, this time the war against terror. And because of that, really another opportunity, I believe, was missed because rebuilding civil structures, developing uh, Afghanistan, trying to put right some of the infrastructural damage was done, but it was seen as an add-on to a military occupation, which was seen as a much bigger priority. And, for example, uh, former warlords, instead of being disarmed and, um, you know, taken in front of war crimes tribunals, were invited into government, and, and there they stay until today. And the result, as we all know, has been another disastrous insurgency. And, by the way, I'd just like to say that Gulbuddin Hikmatyar has now allied himself with his former enemies, the Taliban, as well as with his former friend Osama bin Laden. So, you know, the, the mess, if you like, is getting worse, not better. Um, every time I go back to Afghanistan, there are more suicide bombings. It's something that wasn't known before. There's more fragmentation of society. As, as Minna says, there's this loss of humor and dignity and this great sadness. It's, it's not surprising. Afghan life expectancy is just 44 years, and there's been war for 30 years. So, so, so few people remember even Afghanistan when it wasn't a war. And I do feel that... It's important to tell you all these things, even though I think you may, may, may know them, because a lot of the mess Afghanistan is in, of course Afghans, as Azala says, will take responsibility for their own country and wish to do so. But a lot of the mess is a direct consequence of international policies, of international meddling in Afghanistan. And unpopular as foreign troops are in Afghanistan, they are deeply unpopular, uh, I do feel that the withdrawal of troops is likely to bring in its wake a huge reduction in Western attention on Afghanistan and humanitarian support for Afghanistan. I, I, it seems to me inevitable it will get harder and harder to support Afghanistan in a humanitarian way. Uh, 
of course, it's Afghan responsibility that uh, also that so many people have died, that the country is in such a mess, that, you know, corruption is so enormous, uh, that drugs are, you know, account for um, around 70%, I think they say, of GDP. Uh, oh, it's the biggest opium producer in the world. But this is not just Afghan responsibility. This is also the responsibility of uh, intervention, outside intervention. And for that reason, I would really beg people to remain engaged with Afghanistan. Thank you, Sarah, very much. <clears throat> Declaring my own interest, I drove to Afghanistan in 1969 in a bus as a student. I wasn't a hippie, but I nearly was. But, uh, uh, but um, uh, in those days, uh, the superpower standoff was delicious because, in fact, you drove into the country on a very long and beautifully made American concrete highway, and then it gave way to a reasonably well-made Soviet highway, which went out of the country the other end. And uh, that, in a sense, uh, left a kind of cradle within which a most mellow existence could be lived. And you could sit on your haunches in a Kandahar and drink tea with red beards hmm. and have a really very mellow time, and lots of people did. Um, then I went back 10 years later uh, in 1979 to witness the Soviet invasion. We crossed in from Iran. I was taken by a, a, a mullah who I met in um, Mashhad in, 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 in Iran uh, who guided us through to an area where we could see the Soviet convoys going through. And I was with the uh, Mujahideen who even in these appalling circumstances, mirrored what you said. They had a sense of humor. There were very funny things happened. The Russians made an absolute cock-up of getting into the country. Um, uh, and then small boys were able to make absolute mincemeat of uh, gun turrets by running at the tanks and dropping things in. Uh, the thing, and, and they would catch fire, and the boys would run away again. It was an extraordinary thing to experience. But this picture has been horribly gloomy. I want to tell you that this morning uh, we all met and we had a rather happy breakfast during which <laughs> we talked about all these things and we emerged at the end of it, I have to say, as we need to emerge tonight, <laughs> in an optimistic frame of mind. Uh, so this gloom and, and I'm afraid even your pessimism, which you are prepared to temper with optimism, um, will emerge, I hope, by the end of this debate uh, with some hope. And I, the first hope I'd like to explore is what I think emerges as a golden thread here, which is that of Afghan-ness, which takes on from where Neil left off. It is, and you said this, you said that Afghan-ness outstrips virtually everything else. People are first Afghan and then something else. Is that right and why? And will it sustain and endure through what has been this grinding 30 years, the last 10 of which have been subject to some of the most sophisticated weapons ever known to mankind. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm targeting you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, I think, no, I don't think, I believe, there is no other sense than the sense of Afghanness or the sense of Afghan identity that uh, helped the people of that territory survive, keep their life going, and at the same time fight the foreign, different foreign invasions that, or different attempts that happened. Uh, 
and still not surrender in one way. I'm not talking especially about this uh, 2001 and on and the, 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 the kind of situation that we were in, what were the differences? In the minds of the Afghan people, there were differences more, they had respected that difference more back in 2001 in comparison to today with the anger is becoming more and more everyday by the actions or the practice, practically elements that they see happening in the country. But the same people, when the Soviet in, uh, invaded the country, the intention was not appreciated by by majority of the people. Of course, a small minority were there, the PDPA and the forces who were uh, actually opening the ground for them. But I think it was the Afghan identity more than an other identities that were basically injected from outside, uh, specifically mentioning religion. It came later on through jihad and exp explaining that jihad as an important uh, element to, uh, to, to feed the, the anti-Soviet war. But of course, the, the, the protection of the land and the Afghan identity in terms of protecting it has been uh, very strong, and it is strong uh, within the country uh, uh, more than any other time, I would say. Mm -hmm. Of course, attacks from outside, different types of attack, I'm not talking about only the military side, but different kind of attack and attempts to influence and change that culture is also there. Mm. We have regional forces that are trying to say that you are superior than the other. Pashtuns must be the, on the lead uh, versus the Tajiks. Uh, uh, Shias must be uh, uh, must occupy more force, uh, more uh, power than the others, or they are a minority, and so they deserve more rights. These kind of fields are trying. Uh, these kind of elements are trying to be fueled from 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 different forces. But I think it's strong, strong, mm. and it's more strong outside the major cities, outside the mentalities of some so-called intellectuals and the others. But you talk about a country, and your grandpa was a warlord, and the sense we have is of, of an Afghanistan of kind of masses of warlords and no real centralised power, and, 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 and Karzai as a kind of Western charade. But I think there, I would agree really with Ozil that there's a very strong Afghan identity that... Uh, uh, even though the country is disparate and the geography is incredibly difficult, there's a feeling of pride about being an Afghan, partly because it's so very difficult, because the history has been so, uh, in many ways, uh, disastrous. You know, there's always been one person or another uh, trying to move through Afghanistan. And but do they all look back on um, Ahmed Shah Durrani and... Uh, and uh, uh, Abdul Rahman from, yes, from those I, I early years as Afghan heroes? Yes, uh, I mean, Ahmad Shah Durrani unified the tribe and he uh, became really the, the king of modern Afghanistan. But I think there's, there's some kind of, something about these people goes back further than that. Um, Alexander, I found a, a quote from him. I think he may have been writing to his mother. He said, you have brought forth only one Alexander. By the way, it took him three years to get into Afghanistan, through Afghanistan. It only took him six months to go through the whole of Iran. And he said, you have brought forth only one Alexander, but in Afghanistan, every man is an Alexander. And there was something about these people even then. And I think this is something, Afghans, that there's a few, I think there's a few elements that are common to Afghans. One is a complete obsession with their history. Uh, um, you know, my own family spends its time thinking back about its ancestors, but also thinking about the history of the country. Uh, Afghans are very interested in their history. They know who's been through the country. They know what people have suffered. They know about the minaret of Jam and 
that, for example, when the Bamiyan Buddhas were blown up, many, many Afghans said to me, this is a disaster because these belong to us, but they also belong to humanity and they're part of Afghanistan. And they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not Buddhists. They're still proud of them. Another thing is a very irreverent sense of humor. And I think that's a pretty common uh, uh, thing in the Afghan character. You know, I remember in, in Kandahar being taught how to play a game called Stone the Muller and you got double points if you, if you manage to hit the little muller in the front. So there's a, this kind of... It's hard to describe Afghanistan, but there is a lot in there that I think is common across ethnic groups and across tribes. Of course, in times of uh, you know war and desperation, it may become harder to find, but I believe it's there. I want to open up to the floor in just a moment, but just two more quick uh, questions, one to Michael uh, and one to Minna. Um, Michael, what has happened in the last uh, um, 30 years is something which even Afghanistan had never experienced before. And that was not just a military uh, uh, war, but an ideological and cultural war. The import, courtesy of American bidding and Saudi Arabian financing, of a movement that you've described uh, with its Arab roots, of um, uh, Islamic fundamentalists who were alien, as you say, to the society but who, because of the sheer volume of money and the strength of military weaponry that was put their way by both the United States and Saudi Arabia, has done much to corrupt uh, the society uh, that, that is Afghan. And I want to, to find out from Minna how robust you think the uh, survival of the society will be and the recovery of the society from this experience, and from a military point of view, whether you actually think they have been defeated or will be defeated, who, who defeated? the Taliban, which are this Saudi and American invasion. Yeah, I mean, the, the, th the thing about the, uh, the Taliban, a lot of people who are fighting international forces at the moment, I mean, fight um, with the Taliban, but not for them. It, it, and it's still the case, roughly, that about 80% of the people who forces, Western forces come into contact with, i.e. the Taliban, are fighting within 20 miles of the place they were born. So they're local, and they are presumably driven by that sense of I don't like foreign fighters in my country. And a lot of it is that anger at intervention. And certainly, it, it's, I mean, any intelligence people will tell you that all of the Taliban commanders are in Quetta and Peshawar. They're, they're not really on the front line. They're commanding things, and it's, local, it's the local lads who are doing it. And remember, that a lot of them are part-timers. They're, you know, they're Taliban in the morning and policemen in the afternoon or whatever, <laughs> quite seriously. Um, so a lot of them turn out for the Taliban in various ways and places and so on, but some of them are, are fairly hard-line. Can they be defeated? Yes, but not militarily. Um, they can be undermined, and the basis of their, I wouldn't say support, but the basis of their, of their influence can be uh, undermined by political and social uh, moves, but which require basic stability to take place. So it's a sort of strange circle. You know, to break into the, to the political side, you've got to do something about stability. To do the stability thing, you've got to be political. Um, David Petraeus, who's the commander in Afghanistan now, he says about counterinsurgency, which is what the military phrase is for all of this, he says it's all hard all the time. The point about military operations, usually people will tell you it's 90% boredom and 10% terror in the sense that military operations are lots and lots of doing nothing followed by fighting for your life or fighting for somebody else's life. The thing about counterinsurgency is that you are on full power all the time. And so anything can go wrong any day of the week which undermines the work of the last three months in that village or that town. It's all hard all the time. It can be done, um, but it's, it's 
very difficult, takes a long time, and is brutal. And one just final point on that. Everyone looks at um, Britain in Malaya as a good example of successful counterinsurgency. And a couple of things. One is we're hearing just this week about some of the brutalities that took place in Malaya and Kenya and so on, because they did, and they weren't reported in those days. But even then, Britain succeeded in Malaya in straight military terms. It was, lasted from 1947 to 1961. All right, it took 14 years. Britain deployed 40,000 troops and trained a quarter of a million local Malayan troops. And how many people were they fighting? The communist guerrillas, about 10,000. And it took 14 years. So, yes, it can be done, but it's brutal, expensive, and long. And our political system doesn't allow those, uh, th those luxuries, let alone the, the, the constant eye of the media, um, which makes it clear that you cannot fight fire with fire. You have to fight Taliban brutality with nothing but, but careful kid gloves. And if you do it differently, you will suffer for it. The recovery. Um, will Afghan society shake off the Talibanization or will it become part of the culture and make it all the more difficult to uh, unite and work the country? Well, I'd take slight issue with, with the idea that the Taliban are entirely a foreign body because the Taliban, the leaders, Mullah Omar, um, the key leadership council, they are all Afghans. Uh, there's an ideology which, uh, which comes from... Um, from madrasas um, outside, um, but there there is a very strong element uh, within Afghan culture, uh, which also recognises some of the, um, the, the the kinds of uh, ideas that the Taliban stand for. The oppression of women. Um, certainly, and, and uh, there's this. Um, there, you may some of you remember from last summer. There was a, a big uh, Time magazine cover. Uh, with Bibi Aisha, whose nose had been cut off. And the storyline was that the Taliban had, um, had... This was Taliban justice. Uh, the Afghan Human Rights Commission looked at that case and a few months later found that there, were, there had been no Taliban involvement. It had been the family um, and, and, the, uh, and the community around who decided that this was an appropriate punishment for Bibi Aisha to, from, for, for running away from her husband. And so I, I think that there's... There are, there are very strong trends within society which, which the Taliban have recognized and, and which, which there's, a, there's a sort of groundwork laid for, for the kind of um, the, the, the social um, framework that the Taliban would, would like to see happening. Um, and I think, I think we often don't quite understand the nature of social change. Uh, the, in Afghanistan, you have extremely sophisticated urban elites. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, women, even in Lashkagar, were wearing short skirts. Uh, there was uh, Western music. There, were, there was the hippie trail, which was, um, which was influencing urban cultures. Um, and, but, but somehow, that didn't take account of, of what was happening in the rural areas. And so I think that I think rather than uh, expecting rapid modernization... Uh, there needs to be an understanding of, of how long that modernization will take. Um, and I think that that's been... That successively, Afghan leaders have been trying to push the country towards that modernization. And if we talk about Abdurrahman Khan, who is the, the 19th century uh, leader, who is so often cited as kind of the, 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 the kind of Afghan leader that Afghans want, 
um, it, what he was, he had, there were three planks of his, uh, his rule, which were ideology. There was a version of Islam which gave him power. Um, there was a strong and repressive state. Uh, there was a foreign threat. The infidels are coming. Uh, and, and I think these are the kinds of, these are the forces that are, that, that even the current, I mean, Karzai is trying to, to in a way, use the same kind of um, narrative to, to give himself power within Afghanistan. And, and I think that it is that kind of, people have this idea of this, some kind of authoritarian style, very strong leader who can lead Afghans into the future. Um, where I think that the, I think at least um, the efforts that we make as foreigners, uh, I'd suggest should be focused much more on opening up civil society and on really creating a much stronger set of debates and um, and, and Afghan sort of allowing both the traditional side and the modern side to, to have a dialogue within Afghanistan rather than, rather than enforcing uh, that kind of autocratic tendency. Let's open up to the, the floor. Um, I, I see a hand, a distinguished hand, immediately. So uh, let's take that. It looks to me under the rather poor middle row lighting to be John Tusa, but I couldn't guarantee it. Thank you very much. Um, two, two things, if I may. First of all, um, Malaya is a very, very weak example, I'm afraid. Uh, the, Malaya has a border. It has the coast. Uh, Afghan doesn't. Secondly, in Malaya, you knew who the enemy were. They were Chinese. You don't have either of those advantages. There are many, many other areas. That, I'm afraid, is a very, very weak example. But my question, I can't be optimistic, I'm afraid, John, is Petraeus was asked recently, what is plan B? And he looked at his question and said, more plan A. Now, he also tends to say failure is not an option. But if it seems increasingly likely, failure is the only option. How do you define, and this is principally, but not only a question for, uh, for, for Michael Clark, how do you define failure in such a way that it accepts realities without leaving the Afghans, the poor Afghans, completely in the lurch? But just saying failure is not an option will get you nowhere. Uh, well, let's get a brief answer, Michael, and, and, and anyone else who wants to answer. I want to take as many questions yeah, as I can. Just very briefly, I, I also uh, I don't like the idea that there is no plan B. That, I mean, of course, people think about it, but they don't want to talk about it. And, and the, the, the plan B, or, the, or the, the moderate success plan, would be something like that, uh, that Afghan security forces are numerous enough and well-trained enough by 2015 to allow this transfer of authority, in addition to which there is a national government around Karzai that brings in those elements of Taliban uh, support that is negotiable uh, and, and isolates the hardliners, and then somehow somebody is able to persuade Karzai to take the Mandela option, to say, right, you've been the father of the modern uh, environment, now give way to a more different arrangement. And that's a, that's a recipe for some sort of success. If those things don't work, then there is a lot of strategic failure uh, likely, but they, that's, those things are not impossible. I'm not going to predict them, but they're not impossible. I'm a bit more depressed than that, yeah. probably. Uh, uh, I, I mean, the Afghan National Army has desertion rates of 25%. Um, the US trainers take their mobile phones away before operations because they tip off the Taliban. Uh, what's it, 10,000 police killed in the last what was it, three years, four years? I can't remember now. I mean, it's... I can't see how this is all going to come together by 2015. I, I, I cannot imagine it. Oh, I'm saying that's the plan. Yeah. <laughs> it hasn't 
Yeah, it hasn't <laughs> failed, uh, no. <laughs> but it's, it's probably going to get knocked sideways in certain mm. degrees. That's mm. absolutely right. So more Plan A is extend 2015? Yes, mm. yes. And that will depend on what happens in the American presidential election. I want to take the, the, those three questions in this cluster here. So we'll take three together. Yes, right at the very back. I'm from California, and so I wanted to at least have you comment on the reason why the United States government originally wanted to go in there, which um, they used 9-11 as an excuse. And I wanted you to comment on the fact that um, a Shell Oil Company and others have wanted to build an oil pipeline through Afghanistan for a long, long time. And that's one of the economic reasons why the United States went in from many of our point of view, many of us, as well as the fact that um, the United States has uh, military and other uh, manufacturers of weapons have made enormous amount of money testing new weapons on Afghan people, like the unmanned drone planes that are dropping bombs on civilians all over the country in the mountainside. They've dropped bombs on uh, little villages where there were wedding parties going on. And I just, many of us feel that the United States has no right to be there at all, that it is up to the Afghan people to organize their own revolution for a secular country, not a political Islamic country like in Iran, which most of the Afghan people would like, um, a secular country where people could practice any religion they want. And um, I don't know what the basis of the UK intervention is as compared to the US intervention. What are their underlying right. motives? I'm going to pause you there, and I'll sort of sub it down. As America went in on ulterior motives, 9-11 was a mere excuse, uh, and what on earth are the Brits doing in there? Uh, uh, and let the Afghans have their own revolution. We'll, we'll, we'll park that for a minute because I want to extract the other two questions as well because otherwise we won't be able to cover enough ground. Uh, there are two, two more questions in the corner here. There were, there were two other hands up. Yours, man with the glasses. Yes, straight down in front of you. Yeah, and then there was one in the back. That's it, yeah. Uh, I was born in Kabul the same year that you were driving in on your bus. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, and my grandfather had one of those raisin factories that um, Syra mentioned. <laughs> You mother, are seriously connected. Yes. <laughs> and my mother was wearing the mini skirts and driving a car and going to law school. So I'm completely out of touch, obviously, with what was going on in the rural areas. And I've spent 32, 34 years in, um, in the West. Um, so I remember in Afghanistan where there was no war. Um, and the clans were there, but they weren't ripping each other apart. And what I have spent doing is... Um, I also watch the Soviet invasion on TV in America. Um, and what I have spent doing the last 34, 33 years of my life is listening to people like you going on and on about all the problems. Um, especially, and also I am a development practitioner by profession. I worked at the World Bank for a long time. And I went into Afghanistan with the World Bank on a mission. Um, I think it's really easy to talk about all the things that are wrong with Afghanistan and all the problems with Afghanistan. But what I want to hear from all of you, and I heard it from the defense analyst who was very brave to say something, is what are the solutions to what's going on in Afghanistan? Because we can leave and we can have exactly what we had in, 
1989, when we had the Geneva Conference, we had a political settlement to what was going on. The Russians left, the Americans left, and what did the Afghans do? I, um, I measure success in Afghanistan by the number of bodies. In the 80s, millions died. In the 90s, tens of thousands died. And now, thousands are dying. It's not great, and we can do better, and we should do better, but what are the solutions? I'm, I'm sort of bored of listening to the problems. Well, thank you very much for your perspective. I, I think those are two such good questions. We should pause it there and just get a reaction. Why, well, why don't you start, Mina? Okay, well, I, I think that that was a very familiar sentiment um, from, uh, I'd say, a lot of the diplomats and the military in Afghanistan is, you know, why do you analysts keep telling us the problems, you know, tell us the solutions? Unfortunately, for the five years that I've been in, engaged... I've seen things go from bad to worse. In early 2006, when, uh, when I'd first jumped into, been in Helmand for a few months and, and it was then watching things, there was a London conference which was all about uh, governance, development. Uh, it was a f vision for the future Afghan state. At the same time, having been down in Helmand, it was very clear that there was, a, there was an insurgency that was about to kick off. The Taliban had been regrouping, uh, the British soldiers coming down, and the Canadians who'd already arrived um, were, uh, were pulling, were galvanizing this insurgency. And, and at the same time, there was a sort of highfalutin high development speak happening. Um, and I have to say that I don't, I don't see the solutions based on the kind of the, the, the ways in which we conceptualize this problem. Um, I don't see the solutions coming from uh, the counterinsurgency doctrine. I don't see the solutions coming from this idea of state building. I fundamentally don't believe that outsiders can do very much to build other people's states. I think that that comes from within. And, but but the, the, the flip side of that is that means that you need to have political leadership and political will inside the country which wants to take forward a state, which wants to uh, create the reforms and which wants to do the right things. And that's where, I don't, that's where I see the fundamental problem, where I don't see a solution right now, is that this government, uh, led by President Karzai, has become too comfortable with the way things are. Uh, they're actually benefiting from the war. There's a very strong interest individually for the, the various government ministers uh, for conflict to continue. There are huge contracts, uh, security contracts, construction contracts, logistics contracts, which they have their hands in. And, and I don't see where, where the, sort of, where the, the momentum and motivation comes from to change the way things are right now. And that's where I think actually the Taliban are quite an interesting phenomenon because they're, they're articulating a lot of the grievances that people really genuinely have on the ground. Uh, and that's why their numbers are expanding. That's why they have more and more support in different communities. Uh, they are de delivering justice in communities, people feel. It's rough justice, it's often brutal justice, but it's, it's justice and you don't have to pay for it. Whereas if you go to the government courts, you pay a huge hefty fine, a huge hefty bribe. Um, and so th there's, there's, there's something fundamentally, the problem that foreigners are not going to solve, uh, but I think that where we can... We can what we can do is try to lay the framework uh, for peace negotiations and for a much broader conversation in society about what kind of state are Afghans willing to live in. 
engaging civil society actors, engaging uh, people from the different provinces around the country, engaging people from, uh, who are not warlords and, and who are not uh, those who are in power right now, um, but also engaging the Taliban because they are, at the moment, for better or for worse, they're articulating some of the real grievances that people have. Well, uh, I think I will uh, pick on both questions, although uh, the best person to answer why United States was there is uh, somebody who is representing United States. But I, I can share the understanding that I have as an Afghan why United States was there. Let's for a moment also accept the fact that the 9-11 incidents or what happened before or after that are not the sole and only reason that the United States is there. From what we have been discussing today and from what you have seen probably in the exhibition, this country and the geopolitics of this country also has some interest that was not just simply one simple, one small or one tragic incident that resulted into that. So that strategic geopolitical location of that country is undoubtedly, I believe, is uh, part of this plan that uh, the intervention actually happened from the day one. Uh, on the solution, I, I, I thank you for bringing that question because that's the frustration of majority of the people. But I would like to also say that imagine people, imagine your country, man and woman living in Afghanistan, experiencing actually what's happening. To what extent are they involved in all kind of recipes or all kind of uh, prescriptions that everybody is uh, is writing for them. Once I remember I was here for the London conference and there was there were discussions of the U.S. foreign policy for Afghanistan. There is U.K. foreign policy for Afghanistan. There is every you name all countries have their own foreign policies for Afga Afghanistan. I'm not very sure, but probably these foreign policies are different in the political field and in the military field. Now, the entire policies are focusing on this one land, on specifically these villages, these communities where people are living. How much did we listen to people? Uh, uh, Mena was mentioning about the government. I agree definitely that the government is not the only force. We actually failed to build this government which can represent the entire so uh, society. You mentioned about the, the Taliban and trying to, to get, uh, for example, that's one, probably, probably to some extent, to very limited level, probably is one part of the society that are out of anger, out of very uh, terrible incidents that are happening, like civilian casualties and so on. They find sympathy to go towards the Taliban. But what about the other sides? Are the Taliban the only force that gained people's support? I have to inform you, not, not, not even during the Taliban time. I, as an Afghan woman, was able, in that time that is symbolized with burqas, with oppression, with everything that you sometimes, uh, we hear is connected to the Afghan culture and this oppression of women and so on, without anybody's support, I ran home-based literacy classes in that country. And I would like to say that I am not the hero, I am not the one and only woman who did that. There were hundreds and thousands of women who were active in providing education for their children children, and undoubtedly there were thousands of men from their families to their communities on this, those streets where these classes were happening who were supporting that. They did not follow the Taliban ideology. They did not follow the, that kind of extremist uh, ideas. They are Muslims. There is no doubt about it. But that extreme level of 
countering humanity and calling it Islam does not exist in the people's mind. So the solution, I believe, comes from discussion and letting those people to come and say, okay, here is what we want. And that is not uh, going to be in the hand of, I mean, the greatest fear we have with all kind of plan A, plan B, or plan, uh, from, a, from plan A to plan Z, is to just, uh, uh, for you, especially for you here, to see a show of a handshaking of a few so-called leaders that they claim that I am the stakeholder of the Taliban, I am the stakeholder of the government. We said hi to each other, we probably hug each other, and we are going to have peace, and then you leave it, and then we will be the ones who will experience. Unfortunately, this is what happened in many countries, and we have a great fear that it will happen in Afghanistan. We would like to see more and more commitment. This commitment does not mean bombs and drones and rockets and supporting militias, another unfortunate uh, fact that is happening. Now, in order to defeat the Taliban, we are creating an ultra-Taliban groups. Today, I was reading in the news that Kapisa, for example, one of the, uh, the provinces uh, just uh, uh, next door from, from the capital, children, boys and girls from the, that specific district where militias are controlling are not allowed to go to school. So we are creating all these different elements out of our different plans and ideas that we want to get out and we have to have solutions, but they are disastrous for the people and for the country. What we are demanding for, and there are strong forces of civil society existed during the war, it started to emerge during, out of that suffering, and they are not powerful because the indicator of power for the international community, I'm afraid to say, is how many people you killed, how many guns do you have, how much uh, uh, fear you can create. Taliban are creating fear, that's why everyone is t taking them serious. Warlords have guns and control over drugs and everything, that's why. But the civil society are the voiceless who are quite strong and they are there, and they have to be the ones who will have to play a key role in planning the solution. Any solution we decide here and I come or whoever tell you uh, this is the solution, go about it, I'm afraid that will, be, that will just make us happy but it will not um, become a reality. Thank you. Michael. Um, and don't forget uh, Malaya. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, Malaya proves the point in a way. Yes, it can be done, but you know, it's, uh, it's very, very difficult to do and gets harder and harder as time goes on. Just a couple of things putting this into, into context. One is that in, in almost all situations in, in Bosnia, in Kosovo, in Sierra Leone, in East Timor, when humanitarian interventions take place for whatever motives, however good they are, after about six months, the international community has become part of the problem. Part, intrinsically part of the problem because it brings lots of money in, it brings corruption in, it often brings prostitution and trafficking in, it corrupts the society because it's external intervention. So, it, and that doesn't mean to say it shouldn't be done in certain circumstances, but it's part of the problem. And uh, at the moment, uh, the, the Afghan government raises about a billion dollars a year through its own normal taxation and so on. And the international community, variously, puts in about $40 billion a year. So the Afghan government is raising 2.5% of its revenue. And the international community is putting in the other 97.5%, and a lot of that is disappearing in corruption, which is our corruption. Right? It's, a lot of it is the international community's own corruption, through, not through direct dishonesty, but subcontracting, 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 and every, it drains off at every level. So that what ends up in, in, in the road uh, outside... Um, uh, uh, Helmand or Lashkagar or wherever it is is peanuts compared to what was put in at the top end. Real so problem. We've what are the solutions? Hold. Solutions is we've got we've got to really get hold of the way in which contracting goes. And this is this can you is the can you hear Ozana's voices? 
Yeah, well, they, they are listening to, because you can't just give it to Halliburton anymore or Kelly Brown and Root and say, build all the roads, build all the airports. The, the Americans know that goes wrong, and Congress, to its credit, produced a really good report a few months ago called Warlord Inc., which was to say, this is our money that is being drained off by our companies not doing the job we want them to do. And that's, you know, that's not been written by an NGO. That's Congress produced that, and there is, there's the beginnings of some rethinking about all that. One final general point I would make is that there is, across the board in world politics, if your per, per capita GDP is below about $2,000 per head of the population, mm -hmm. if it's below $2,000, it doesn't much matter what type of government you have in terms of development, whether it's democratic or not. It doesn't make a lot of difference to people's lives. Above $2,000 a head, it starts to make a big difference how you organise and what sort of government you have. And that's empirically testable across 190-odd states. But how do you... How Afghanistan, do you, $600. How do you marry... Plan A and David Petraeus with, with th this picture that Ozala has, yeah. has drawn of people anxious to contribute in, in deciding what happens next. Through, I mean, accelerating a political process and trying to persuade President Karzai to take reconciliation more seriously than he does. He says the right things, doesn't necessarily behave that way because he's in a very vulnerable position. And somehow this question of a, a renewed government of national unity has got to be pushed and pushed and pushed because the, the military are not going to make it any better. They can hold the ring for a while. They can create opportunities with a cost, always with a cost. And they can only do it for so long before it, it just corrupts the whole country. Uh, more questions. There's one down here and one right at the back in red. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll take you... I've got my microphone here. Uh, microphone, yeah, well, okay. Yeah, yeah, I was going to come to you, so you come next, then you, and then the lady in red. That's democracy. Um, I was just trying to get an, an inside uh, view, uh, just a general inside view, because from a very simplistic point of view, me, um, terrorism exists around the world, right? Um, Spanish people have ETA, you had IRA. Nobody envisages a foreign occupation to defeat a terrorist um, organization within the West. That would be <laughs> unheard of. Um, in, in all cases, it's a long-term problem that cannot be uh, solved by violence, and it's been proven time and time again. The origin of which, I mean, regardless of where you look around in the world, be it Taliban, ETA, whatever, it has to be people who are unhappy about a situation, usually to do with poverty, lack of resources, then you have someone who's trying to make a profit of, out of it, provide them, them with uh, arms, and then you have people in such a state that the actual terrorist organization, and here the mafia is a very good example, provides a pseudo-family for them, right? So it's someone, because I've been told that the, the Taliban, in, in a way, is not something that people always are afraid of, but it's an organization which provides them with the family they maybe don't have, with the support, um, a network, something to belong with, too. Um, so how, how, who is the, the great mind who decides, right, we're going to beat that just by going in, beating the hell out of everyone, and then they'll be applauding us simply because we are the... You know, we'll, the good we'll guys. Take a cluster, and, and we'll, we'll park that, and we'll take this very patient man up here. 
Well, what I would say is the real problem is not Afghanistan. The real problem is the international community. And, you know, I, I like these words, you know, international community or director of defense. Why don't we call it what it is? War. It's not defense. Nobody's attacking our country. These are, when they say security, they mean our foreign interests. And the international community is like the mafia, basically. And our real problem as people is how we can put the genie back in the box and stop these colonial wars from continuing. And one of the things we should do, well, obviously, the Vietnamese made a start by defeating America, but what we should really do is we should call for the prosecution of people who are responsible for war crimes in Vietnam, about use of Agent Orange or the torture of the Vietnamese, the mass murder of the Vietnamese population, and then bringing our own politicians to trial and putting in prison for Iraq, and then also the, the war crimes that are being committed and the torture that goes in in Bagram Air Base, and the torture of Afghan civilians, and the bombing of wedding parties, and the things which has created that. And it's no use pretending that we're somehow the guys in white hats. We supported the Islamic fundamentalists. We funded them. We created this monster. In fact, we will support anybody in the third world except secular people fighting for their rights and fighting for democracy against, uh, uh, against monarchies, against cliques and shahs and things. And the reason we have a, an Islamic state in Iran is because of the American and English involvement in overthrowing every democratic movement the Iranian people tried to put in place. Well, th th thank you very much. Um... Uh, the, the cynical journalist in me uh, 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 has an immediate uh, response, admittedly from the chair, that if you can't put a banker behind bars, what chance you have of putting uh, a, a, a leading politician behind bars is, is pretty, um, pretty remote. Nice try, yes. Um, uh, so we've got two parked here, and, and um, let, let's take the lady in red, and then I'll take you in. And that probably is going to be about all we get time for. Um, but let's take the lady in red, and then... Um, where was that very uh, excited hand? Um, yes, yes, in the maroon shirt. Yeah. Hi, um, I work at the British Council on, a, on an education project with Afghanistan, and I haven't heard any, kind of any mention of um, working with Afghanistan to kind of via education or soft power. And I just wondered, kind of following on from the lady at the front, about you know the mil military going in and thinking they can just kind of do everything by force what other solutions are there around education training of people um working with people via kind of soft power for want of a better phrase fine and, and the maroon shirt um <clears throat> i learned a great deal from the exhibition and i have some thought which perhaps throws some light on the nature of the problem before we talk about solutions. I think, firstly, we have to recognise that ethnic identity has been pushed to the margins and also the concept that physical obstacles don't exist in the modern environment and in modern geopolitics has got in the way. Um, I'm so accustomed to seeing maps of Afghanistan which are very simple and very plain, uh, adjoining countries, and hardly any inference of the enormous mountainous centre that there is. So the idea of a strong central, central government um, is a nonsense, uh, which explains why the capital, Kabul, is on the bottom right-hand corner, practically in Pakistan, which leads to my next uh, impression 
that indeed the, much of Af Afghanistan, where it's capable of human settlement and of irrigation and so on, are on the foothills of those mountains, leading either on the south in, through Helmand province into Pakistan or in the northeast corner straight into the plains of Iran and Tajikistan, uh, which explains why the population uh, character, which was downplayed by all the news items, um, is not clarified. I knew that there were Tajiks, I knew that there were Pathans, but they would seem to be irrelevant to the broad issue. And it seems to me also that the instability uh, in the history of Afghanistan goes back to the 19th century and is hooked on the 19th century idea of the nation-state, which was quite an impossible ecological project for Afghanistan, which really is, is a, a combination of various regional and provincial entities which go back-to-back -back into the mountains but have a much greater connection both culturally and physically with those adjoining countries. I, and it makes it more you, or less impossible. You've lit a useful flame, which we can... Uh Yes. We, we, we can build on. Um, so that what we should be looking for is for a more decentralised, regionalised entity which allows local groups of people to run more of their own affairs. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I mean, soft power, mafia, uh, ethnicity, war crimes, uh, you couldn't have a more eclectic uh, uh, collection of offerings. And I think I'd better let the mafia start out. It's all your fault. <laughs> You, international community, you. I, I take the blame. I think that on the question of uh, we should stop these, these kinds of wars, I'd, I'd just make a slight distinction. I think that there, there, there are times when we, we, the international community, must intervene to stop suffering. Uh, and that was the case in Bosnia and Srebrenica. It would have been the case in Rwanda, which we failed miserably. Um, I think that the arguments that we've seen on Libya, uh, there were some persuasive cases about you know, stopping the killing of civilians. But that's, I think, different from uh, the hubris that comes with the sort of liberal inter interventionism, liberal imperialism, which led, uh, led the international community into Iraq and Afghanistan. That's a very different kind of um, war. And, and I think uh, that ties in with this question about what to do about terrorism, you know, why, why did we end up there? Who decides? Um, well, after 9-11, it was very clear that the U.S. somehow needed to take action, um, and, and it created solidarity among the Europeans also to, uh, for this intervention. And, and I, think that, I think it's time to pause and think about the kinds of, the, the ways in which we can intervene where we can, where we can uh, create a positive uh, we can stop hu crimes against humanity, we can stop uh, violations of human rights, uh, but then I think we need to see our own limitations on these much larger um, projects which are about fundamentally trying to change the nature of other states and uh, build up uh, states, uh, fix failed states, as, um, as some um, scholars have written. So is it useful then specifically to pick off people to prosecute? I mean... Bagbo obviously is going to be tried. Hmm. Uh, is, is that a route forward? 
Well, I think Bosnia has shown, and, and Kosovo and the, in the Yugoslav war crimes tribunal, this was extraordinarily important for the changes that happened afterwards, to, to be able to, have, to not have impunity, to take um, Krajšnik and Plavšić and, and the key Bosnian Serb leaders um, to court. Uh, Tujman would have been in court, uh, the, the Croatian president. His question is that you'd have to take Blair and Bush. <laughs> I think uh, it's important because, I mean, definitely one of the failures of the last 10 years was this culture of in- impunity that was allowed by the international community and practiced very dominantly by the Afghan government. Because if from the day one there were, I I am very happy to hear that this was an excellent case in in Bosnia. And I'm very sorry to see that in Afghanistan, not only that we did not uh, physically brought to justice people who were responsible for certain crimes uh, against humanity or war crimes, but we have actually uh, welcomed them, we give them uh, political positions, and we actually share the entire power. Let's have an answer to that, because it's true, is it not? I mean, there are people but like, no, I just wanted to I say want one to thing, names, that but... how can today, <laughs> after 10 years, that we see certain very shocking uh, incidents happening within the military intervention, like the civilian casualties, like the kill team that I'm sure some of you have seen, some shocking pictures. How can now we, we go, I mean, how can you expect those warlords who are not the warlords of the 2001 who are almost disappeared or dead, Dead, like not physically, but dead actually in terms of their power. How can you convince them now by saying that we, uh, by saying as an international community that we want to bring you to to to, to justice, where there there is not enough justice seen in terms of certain elements happening within the intervention? For example, I just hear that for one of the perpetrators of the kill team, it, there was only 24 years sentence. If I'm not wrong, this is according to uh, a video just I saw. Uh, 24 years of sentence, and uh, he only has to spend seven years in the prison. I don't see any justice in this uh, to, to punish one side on this and then expect. I would like to see any kind of crime perpetrated or happened by anybody has to face justice in the, in, in the national level for Afghanistan, for, for the people in Afghanistan, but also in the international criminal court. And I think if there is any way... Uh, better if, uh, if there is any way that we can see better than today in terms of uh, looking at future, the future can only build by, by learning from the past and what we have learned, uh, what we have, what mistakes we have made. And this is impunity is definitely one of those mistakes. Sorry. Mm. I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, it sends a, a, a terrible signal the, the the presence of warlords within the government, within the system, within the democratic uh, process, supposedly. Uh, uh, but but also exactly that that w- the international forces also you know people are sort of caught between different areas um, uh, factions of. Um, Violence. Everybody is setting that precedence of violence. I, th- there's a very good Persian proverb, which is uh, If you've got no troubles, buy a goat. And just on the question of, uh, you know, the international community, uh, it seems that the drift of a lot of these questions is what are we doing in Afghanistan and what should be done about it? And I, I, I feel that perhaps the uh, it, uh, Americans and their allies are beginning to feel that they bought a goat 
And uh, I, I very much worry that the, 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 the danger is that Afghanistan has had the wrong kind of attention for too long. Um, and uh, that, that, that the danger now is that that attention will be shut off. And I would like, because the lady mentioned positive things as well in Afghanistan, to, to say that there has been some progress. I mean, we, we all are talking about terrible things in Afghanistan. I could quote you, you know, many more terrible statistics, but I'd like to quote a couple of good ones. There are 28% of women, I think, in the, um, uh, in the parliament. The constitution requires 25%. They've actually gone over that. Uh, there's a sort of more or less free press for the, for the first time. Uh, there is some development. There is some access to, to, to women being able to go to schools. Yes, of course, there's still a, a, a long, long way to go. And this has been made possible by some form of outside attention on Afghanistan to allow people like Ozala and others to try to build this very fragile state from nowhere, from destruction. And my very last point on, uh, on solutions, because I didn't manage to talk about solutions, is that uh, from my experience, although they have no power, uh, the women of Afghanistan are a lot more organized and sorted than the men. And frankly, men would not have been able to organize lit home-based literacy programs in Kabul. I mean, you know, if, if there had been a sort of despotism trying to prevent male education, it was lucky in a way it was that way around because only the women, I can tell you, I've traveled with men and women in Afghanistan, only the women are capable of that level of organization. So if you do want to kind of contact combat corruption because they're much less corrupt and, and organization because they're much more organized. You know, let's try and strengthen the women as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I, I feel bound to seize Sarah's uh, positive end in order to fulfill my promise that we would end on an uplifting note. But I think it's not an absurd uplifting note because actually if you really want to find one fundamental difference from the extraordinary architecture that Neil set out with his artifacts at the beginning, it is the presence of women in the equation. And it's very difficult to see actually how you could ever put the female genie back in the bottle. It probably is too late finally to roll back of what is happening to women in Afghanistan, even though, as you say, there are great swathes of Afghanistan where it may not be happening. But it's happening enough. If you have 500,000 girls in school, you can't totally destroy that. You would need a nuclear device to deal with it at all quickly. Uh, and so I would like to venture to suggest that, that there is as much hope in Afghanistan as there is fear. Uh, I don't think you can say that fear completely outstrips hope and that what this exhibition tells us is there is also fiber, Afghan fiber, which whether it be diverse through the um, warlords, to which you are not related, but related, um, uh, or whether it is expressed in the terrible um, misunderstandings with which the international community approaches this. There's one central message which I think we should take away with us, which Ozala spelt out, and which I think you've also spelt out, Minna, and that is that whatever happens in 2015, there is one obligation on worldwide civic society, and that is to take away the imagery of this exhibition, keep it in your hearts and brains, and say we will not forget Afghanistan. 
We may extract our troops and our corruption uh, insofar as we're capable of doing, but we cannot extract our commitment now to make up for whatever our misdeeds have been, and not just for the last 30 years, but for certainly the last 300 years. We're all related to people who've been naughty in Afghanistan. That's not a bad thought. And perhaps we owe it, therefore, to do something about it that doesn't involve weaponry. Uh, on that uh, note, uh, I would like to thank our four panellists, who I think have been wonderful in guiding us through. But above all, I'd like to thank you. If you sit here and look out there, you see the most marvellously eclectic audience, and you see something I don't think you would get in many museums. You get this old place firing up a debate about the now. And that's the great achievement of Neil McGregor. Thank you very much. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.